Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is wonderful to be together again and to, to open the Word of God. Uh, this week, we're going to be continuing our series in Ezra. Um, so, before we jump straight into the scripture, I think it's, it's really important that we remember that the Bible uh, is one story. It's one big narrative from beginning to end. Um, so, by way of a quick recap, let's just look at where today's passage sits in the big picture of the Bible narrative. Um, because if we if we don't have a context, then, then it does rob us of, of some of the meaning of it. So, by way of quick recap, um, so we have the, the creation, we have the fall. Uh, from Adam and Eve, we've, we, we have a few generations till Noah, then there's the flood, the rainbow. From Noah, we jump ahead to Abraham, uh, where, and Abraham meets with God, and, and God promises Abraham that he will, he will become a great nation. Uh, from Abraham, we have Isaac. From Isaac to Jacob, God tells Jacob that he will become a great, the great nation that he promised to Abraham. Uh, and he, he renames him Israel. Uh, then Jacob and his lads end up in Egypt by way of famine and Joseph and his posh coat. Uh, Jacob's 12 sons and their families grow to become the 12 tribes of Israel and end up enslaved uh, before God brings them out of Egypt through Moses via the Red Sea and into the wilderness. In the wilderness, they get the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, they establish the tabernacle, which is like a portable uh, temple, uh, which was like a, basically it's a posh tent. Uh, and that's where, that's where the Spirit of God would dwell uh, and fire would come down and, and there would be a pillar of fire and there would be a pillar of smoke that they, would f they followed through the wilderness. Uh, and after 40 years of mistakes, uh, they finally enter the promised land. And when they get there, there's the time of the judges. And, and then, then they ask God for a king like everyone else. And God gives them this, this whole string of kings who, who vary wildly in their character and devotion to God. Uh, and it's during this time of the kings that the, the temple is built and the glory of God fills it. Uh, sometime later, the Babylonians invade uh, and destroy the temple. Uh, and take the people captive. And the 12 tribes are once again enslaved and taken from the promised land of Israel. 70 years later, they're released from Babylon. And now they have to settle back into the ruins of their former home. Which at this point uh, has got a bunch of other people living in it. Since it was left empty for, what, 70 years. Uh, then a fella called Zerubbabel, which is a great name to say. Uh, sound like Fred Flintstone's mate. That's what I think of straight away. Uh, so, But Zerubbabel, which means planted in Babylon... Uh, takes responsibility for rebuilding the temple. And this is where we find our scripture today. The Israelites, Israelites have arrived home uh, and have just about set, settled back into their land when, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, we read, <clears throat> When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Some translations say as one man. Um, then Joshua, son of Zodak, or, Ye or Yeshua, depending on, on your uh, translation there, uh, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of she Shealtiel, uh, and his associates began to rebuild the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. 
both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, the sacrifices for the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Now, for those of you who uh, know my family, who know, who know uh, me and Laura, you'll probably have noticed that my wonderful wife, Laura, and our equally wonderful and lovely daughter, Beth, uh, are very much two peas in a pod. Uh, not only do they look alike, but they share a whole lot of, of character traits too. Uh, one of the things that this whole uh, pandemic, this whole being trapped inside thing has really highlighted is that they both need uh, something to look forward to. The idea of not having a plan or a goal or something nice to focus on seems to make it very difficult for them to manage the, the monotony of lockdown life. I'm sure many of you can, can totally relate to that. Uh, me and Ryan probably a little bit more easy, easy come, easy go. We relaxed with it, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a challenge at times like these, but it's a great character trait to have. And, and, you know, I think it's part of why they're both such switched on, kind of organised, driven people. Uh, it's also what makes them mildly terrifying to play at board games, I'll be honest. Uh, all I'm saying is when Monopoly comes out, expect no mercy. Uh, and, and as we look at our text here, we see a nation of people uh, with a similar character. People who struggle and fail when they have no focus um, when, when, and they, they, they end up being, becoming entangled with their struggles and their circumstances. Um, but a, a nation of people who thrive when they are focused on what is to come. When they look ahead to the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies. When they fix their vision on the coming Messiah and the fulfilment of God's promises to them. When they think about who God is and who he says they are and what their nation will become. And it's this shared focus or devotion uh, that draws them from their freshly rec reclaimed and settled homes to unite as one, or unite as one flesh, or unite as one man um, at the site where the temple sat before its destruction at the hands of their Babylonian captures. In a time when there was little in the way of resources, and with masses of work to be done to rebuild and restore their broken nation, they responded to the call, taking the time and money required to gather together. See, our text helps explain this gathering in verse 1. Uh, we're told that this took place in the seventh month. Now, what's so special about the seventh month? Well, uh, the seventh month was a significant time. Uh, of looking ahead. It was a period in the Jewish calendar known as Tishri. Um, they didn't have Christmas to celebrate because they didn't yet have Christ, but Tishri was about as close as they got. Uh, throughout the whole month, people would gather together for feasts and celebrations and all manner of sacrifices, rituals and observances, uh, most, if not all of it, which revolved around the temple. You know, it was a real big deal. Uh, and as we continue to read verses 2 and 3, we see something really interesting. As I say, so much of the celebrations of Tishri revolved around the temple. But rather than beginning the work to restore the temple itself, 
uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Yeshua, decided instead to search for the footings where the old altar once stood, just outside the front door, and rebuild it in that same spot. Uh, I woke up yesterday. Uh, I woke up yesterday to an ice-cold house. Uh, I, and I, my, my boiler's fairly new, so it's a bit posh, and it sends a message to your phone if there's a problem. And so I, I woke up freezing cold, looked at my phone, uh, and there was an alert telling me it developed a fault in the night. So when I finally mustered enough courage to leave my lovely warm duvet cocoon uh, and have a look at my broken boiler, I, I stumbled downstairs and saw what no one really wants to see in winter, a flashing screen showing a random fault code. <laughs> and after googling exactly what an F28 code means uh, on my boiler, I found out that my boiler was failing to ignite and that there were many potential causes and ranging in, in terms of how much it would cost to fix as well. In what can only be described as a flash of genius, my wonderful wife, Laura, reminded me that we had this problem before and it was something to do with the cold weather. At which point it all came flooding back to me. I remembered that if I uh, disconnected the, the condensator pipe, which is like a little pipe at the bottom, uh, it, that, that helps let the, uh, the condensation water drain out of the boiler, then I can blow down that and see if it was just a simple, a simple blockage. So, after Laura's moment of genius, I thought, well, now it's my turn. So, I, I triumphantly pulled the pipe out of the bottom of the unit and water gushed out of the bottom of the boiler, all over our nice wooden worktops, all over my sleeves. I was soaking wet. Uh, and a little bit embarrassed, <laughs> and in my rush to pronounce myself a DIY wizard, I hadn't quite remembered that this would definitely happen if there was a blockage outside. <laughs> and sure enough, once I mopped up, I blew down the pipe and it was blocked. And this, this forced me to, to brave the sub-zero weather, uh, running an extension lead from my garage to the pipe, and use a fan heater to melt the ice that was just plugging up the end of that pipe. Just like that, we were back in business. The boiler was able to ignite and the radiators came back on so I could warm back up, allow my now blue fingers to turn pink again uh, and dry the clothes that got wet in the process of dumping boiler water all over the worktop and myself. But, but why am I talking about my boiler? I can see it on your faces. You're asking that question. Well, <laughs> I was reminded yesterday that if I want a warm house, I need a functioning boiler. And if I want a functioning boiler, I first need to deal with anything that might stop it from igniting. So when Zerubbabel and Jeshua, or Joshua made the decision to rebuild the altar first, it was more than just a pragmatic decision uh, to do something that could be done relatively quickly and easily. It was, it was much more significant than that. The decision to start with the altar demonstrates an extremely important and foundational principle of Christian living. That principle is worship before works. It's also significant that they chose to rebuild the altar on its original foundations, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So let's look at this, this worship before works thing. Yes, we are called to be a people of service and good works. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 specifically tells us that God has prepared good works for us to do. Uh, but... Before else, before all else, we as believers are to be worshippers. 
And biblical worship takes many forms. It's confession, it's repentance, sacrifice, sacrament, along with the more obvious expressions like singing and prayer. All of these activities are worship and ways in which we put God in his place and us in ours. And much like I can't expect a warm house if my boiler has a blockage stopping it from igniting, I cannot expect to live the Christian life without first addressing any and all areas of my life that need to be surrendered and realigned or unblocked. In both cases, if we want to experience the fire, if we want heat in our home, we must proactively deal with whatever is preventing it from lighting. So before we do anything, we must first come to the altar with a sacrifice of worship. <laughs> you know, all too often we're, we're very quick to lament the lack of fire without contemplating the reason. How many times do we uh, attempt, or how many times have you caught yourself attempting to build the temple of your life whilst neglecting to surrender every day in worship at the altar. This ties in really nicely with, with uh, the word that Ben brought about dipping your cup in the river every day. If you're, if, you're, if you're drawing on the water of life every day, that cup will never become dirty because it's daily washed and it will daily fill you. And that's what we need. How often do we fight and fail in a struggle for holiness in our own strength? In a futile pursuit of, of trying to achieve what could only be done in his power. And then we act surprised or hard done by uh, when we end up feeling uh, deflated and defeated and distant from God. How often do we approach God for a breakthrough in our circumstances when what we truly need is a breakthrough in our heart condition? See, I think this is illustrated most clearly in Jesus' ministry. Shocker, Jesus did it best. Uh, <laughs> you know, he had a habit when someone came to answer a question, he didn't answer the question, he answered the person. You know, he would address the root of an issue instead of a perceived need. I think of, of when that, the lame man is brought to Jesus by his friends. They dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down through the roof. And rather than Jesus laying on hands and commanding a healing of this man's broken body, he forgives him his sin. Now you've got to imagine everyone in that room is thinking, yeah, okay, that's great, thanks Jesus. Uh, not what he asked for. Fella can't walk. Uh, can you sort his legs out, please? <laughs> but, but Jesus knew that before anything and anything else, we must first come to God via the altar. We come by the altar where we lay all of our sin, all of our offences as an act of sacrificial worship to be consumed and cleansed in the fire of his righteousness. So when the people are gathering as one man at the altar, it was more than just the people observing the month of Tishri. You see, for 70 years they were in captivity and unable to worship together. Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, not only were they coming back to their land, but they were coming back to God as a redeemed people. 
I want you to know that if during this time where we've been unable to gather in person, you've allowed yourself to grow cold, God would say to you, come to the altar. If you feel distant from the Father, he says, come to the altar. If you have slipped back into old patterns of sin, he says, my precious child, come to the altar. Whatever our situations or circumstances or perceived need, the answer is always come to the altar. No matter how long it has been, you can lay everything down before the living God and approach in humble adoration and submission to him today. God is not standing with a big stick ready to whack you across the knuckles for not being there, for being away for so long. He is there with open arms and the joy-filled heart of a father whose child has returned home. Come to the altar. As I said before, there's also something really significant about the fact that they decided to rebuild the altar on its original foundations, on the foundations of the previous altar. Again, this passage is about a redeemed community returning to their redeemer, demonstrating the principle that no matter how far you may have strayed or, or how much time you have spent away from God's presence, how, or how long it's been since you felt the warmth of his embrace, you have to come back to your foundation. For the people of Israel, this was very literal. You know, for them, the temple of Jerusalem was the, 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 the very, like, geographically located. It was the seat of God's power and presence on the earth. It was on this very site which the Ark of the Covenant had sat with. The smoke of God's presence filled the temple and the Shekinah glory of God was so potent behind the curtain that anyone who dared enter without being ritually and spiritually clean would fall dead as a stone in the presence of a God who bears no sin. For the people of Israel who had not yet seen the fulfilment of what they longed for in the coming Messiah... The foundations of the former altar were sacred because they were the place of atonement. Where God received the offerings of, of animal sacrifice, of animal's blood in exchange for the forgiveness of sin. They worshipped not only on a literal foundation but also on a spiritual foundation of obedience to the law of Moses and faith in the promises of of what was to come. But we have the, the wondrous privilege of standing on the other side of the cross. When we approach God, we have a better understanding, we have a better vantage point of the foundation on which our sacrifice of worship is established. 1 Corinthians 3.11 tells us, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. Let's let that sink in. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. Hmm. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? 
And then Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. See, our foundation, the foundation of the church and the foundation of our worship is the revelation and confession of Jesus Christ. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, it wasn't just an answer to a question. It was a statement of worship that forms the bedrock of our lives. See, I don't know what your thoughts are about infant baptism, uh, but if you've ever been to a christening in like an old C of E building, have you ever noticed where they put the font? Yeah, they, they put it right in front of the door. <laughs> uh, you have, so you have to walk past it in order to get into the building. See, in their, the layout of their building, they have made it so that you can't enter the community of believers without passing by the waters used for identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ. And so it is with the Christian life. Our starting, and in fact our end point in relationship with God, is in the life, death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. There is no other way to enter his presence. He himself said that he is the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him. So when we come to the altar to worship, see, we have so much more to work with than the people of Ezra's day. We have both the revelation and the engagement of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We have the full canon of scripture, whereas they only had obedience to the law through faith. And you see, unlike the people of Israel, our worship is not tethered to any one temple. Because we, the redeemed, have become his temple through the indwelling of his spirit. We are not bound to any land because our inheritance is not a matter of geography and religious tradition. But of eternity and salvation by grace. We do not need human priests to step behind a veil and mediate with God on our behalf. Because Jesus himself destroyed the veil of sin that separated us from God's holy presence. And now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. You see what a privilege we have. Hebrews 10, 11 to 22 tells us. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, this is Jesus we're talking about here now, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that brings faith, having our hearts sprinkled to clean us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Amen. Church, today is the day to draw near to God. Ask the Holy Spirit right now to highlight to you anything that you need to deal with right now, today. Any recurring or unrepented sin, put it on the altar. Any unforgiveness from past hurts, lay it on the altar. Any pride or deception in your heart, lay it down on the altar. I don't care if you come into God for the very first time or if you've walked with him for decades. I believe God wants to remove some blockages this morning so that he can ignite the fire of his presence within you and heat the whole house of God. I know it can be daunting and I know it can be scary to be honest and lay yourself bare with God. But in verse 3, we read that the people of Israel gathered together and built the altar despite their fear. As a nation, they had let their fear rob them of entering the promised land 40 years before they did. They were too afraid of the people to trust God's promise. And as a result, they walked around the desert for 40 years. They had learned their lesson. Let's learn that lesson today. Fear can bar us from worship. It can hold us back. Do not let it rob you of what God has for you today. Do not let fear of what others may think hold you back from giving God the sacrifice of praise he so richly deserves this morning. Proverbs 29.25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Be bold this morning. As Robert reminded us, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous in stepping forward and defy the lies of a desperate enemy who wants you to believe you are irrevocably bound by fear. Well, guess what? Revelation 12, 11 tells us that we will overcome our enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. Maybe fear isn't what's stopping you from coming to the altar today. Maybe it's comfort. We read in verse 1 that before the 12 tribes gathered, they had settled in their town. Are you too settled? Have you become too comfortable in your sin? Have you become so enamoured with the things of this life that you have forgotten that you are not made for this world? You are a citizen of heaven. Have you become so comfortable in your surroundings that you no longer feel the desire to come to the Father? Or have you become so confident in your own righteousness and good deeds that you fail to give God his due worship? Are you prepared to answer the call and leave your settled, comfortable places to gather and worship? God wants you. Not a week from now, not a month from now, not tomorrow, now. Come afresh to the altar 
Come and worship and know him better. Come further up and further into his presence. Come to the altar. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The foundation is set. The foundation is immovable. It is the, the, the undo. It's impossible to undo what God has done. Jesus has done it all once and forever. And on that foundation, I say again, come to the altar.